kind of tag on a few additional thoughts to last week's message, we began to talk about the church in pictures. Uh, the New Testament, in the New Testament, God gives us these pictures to help us understand our place as his body, as his church. And these pictures are helpful to communicate something true about who we are and how we're to understand ourselves in relationship to him and then to, for today to each other. Um, you can skip by that first slide there, uh, Tyler. The first, one of the verses we, we zeroed in on last week was 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. He's not just our King. He's not just our God and Savior. He's also our Father. It's a very familial type of description there, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. He loves us in such a way that we feel ashamed of our sinfulness, and yet we're given hope for something beyond it, life through it, past it. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.16, and so we know, and this is critical, we rely on the love that God has for us. Luke 12, 32, Jesus assured his children, his, his disciples, his sheep of his pasture, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then we ended with 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Those were some of the main verses from last week, and if you notice, Regarding the church as family, we talked mostly about the Father and our relationship to the Father and His relationship to us. But when God in His Word gives us the picture of family to help us understand ourselves and our place in His kingdom, that also has to do with our relationship to each other, not just to Him. And I'm going to have a little squirrel moment here. I forgot to mention something. Daniel and Sarah have a washer and dryer that run great, but they're getting rid of. If anybody's in need, those are available. Hey, I, I looked out and I saw your faces. And You guys want to stand up and come up here like Matt and Christy? <laughs> Sarah didn't want that. All right, if anybody's in need, they're very graciously offered that. So let me or them know. Uh, so this picture of the family, last week it was mainly to do with the father, but now I want to talk about our relationship to each other. Think of the tremendous brokenness that exists in homes in our culture today. It's almost unimaginable. What we have to see is this is not a new problem. This has been the case from almost the very beginning. You have to read, what, three, four pages of the Bible before what you encounter is the story of the first two siblings, brothers. And we discover how very quickly war entered the sacred space of the home. How quickly did one brother, simply because he loved God and did what was right, how quickly did he incur the hateful resentment of his brother? And how quickly was his blood spilled upon the ground? Just a few chapters into the Bible, the first family of four is reduced so quickly to three. Can we fathom the grief that must have filled the hearts of Adam and Eve on the heels of being banished from the garden, seeing what their sin has wrought in creation, then to see it displayed so violently and viscerally before their very eyes among their two boys? Think of how Cain came to be regarded. 
both in his own day by God and then in the future by the New Testament believers. He was regarded not as one of the family any longer, whether his own family or the family of God. That was a harsh reality, but it's true. Why was this? Why was this? Modern Freudian psychology could fill pages and pages of textbooks trying to explain away Cain's actions, softening them, arguing that he was just misunderstood, that he was a victim, that he was mentally ill, not of his own doing, and just like contracting the flu, he couldn't help it, and so therefore we should sympathize with Cain. He wasn't a criminal, but a victim of his own inner brokenness, his own mental sickness, which he didn't ask for and he could not escape. That would be a modern Freudian psychological analysis of Cain. Freudian theory so removes blame and accountability from the human being that eventually no one really is a sinner or is to be held accountable for anything they do. They just need to be diagnosed and treated. No one in Freudian theory is defiled in conscience with real guilt, needing, conf- needing confronted that they might repent unto life. There are only those who have been assailed by some ambiguous, foreign, external, outside force, some virus of the mind which they could not prevent and have no control over and therefore should not be made to feel guilty for. Is that how the Bible deals with Cain? Or was that just how modern psychological theories might deal with Cain? How did God approach Cain? Very straightforwardly. The simple explanation is often the best. Genesis 4, 6 through 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And then what does God say to him? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? As simple as that, he said to Cain, what possible cause could you have for the consternation on your face? There was no couch for Cain to lay on and bend the ear of God. God confronted him regarding the sin in his heart. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? What about God's people centuries and centuries later in New Testament times? How did they understand Cain? 1 John 3.12, we read this from the pen of John, from the heart of John, inspired by God. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's something, isn't it? What we see is how awful when war exists in the hearts of those who share a home, sometimes a bedroom. I will never, ever forget that one of the greatest battles that the Spirit of God had to overcome in my adolescent self, in my sinfulness, in my selfishness, in my spiritual death, was animosity in my heart toward my brothers, which as the youngest of five, for a long time, you feel pretty justified in. But God, by his unfathomable grace and mercy, showed me as an adolescent what a spiritual cancer that was, what a leprosy of the soul, and corrupts everything good from the inside out. We often will lament the thousands who are slain in global conflicts and national wars But do we lament as deeply over the spiritual wars happening in homes on every street, in every neighborhood, 
in every city, in every state, in every country, in the whole world? Do we lament the spiritual murder of the heart in secret places seen only by the Lord? Such is the way of Cain, not the way of the family of God. When God calls his church out of the world and into his kingdom to become his family, he means for his spirit to overcome the sinfulness of our hearts to the degree that we actually begin to love and care for one another as brothers and sisters ought to. The gospel provides the antidote for familial brokenness, for family brokenness. The gospel provides the remedy. The gospel straightens the crookedness of graceless family relationships. As God calls us into his own living room, which in itself is a miracle, isn't it? God's called us into his living room. It's that we might love not just him as our savior, but one another as his children, living under the same spiritual roof. If we truly have beheld and received his grace, it will be proven in our readiness to give it out as lavishly as it's been given to us. That's the proof. This is what it means to be a church family, and this is what it means when God gives the picture of a family to his people, to the church, to understand themselves. We are sons and daughters of the living God, called across the threshold of his own front door to dwell not just with him forever, but with each other. We see the basis for this in Ephesians 2. Read with me, if you would, on the screen here. Verse 17. He came and preached, what? Peace to those who were far away. In this context, meaning all those outside the Jewish community, the Gentile, the pagan, the world, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's saying this to all believers in Christ. But you are fellow citizens with God's people, and he doesn't stop there. We are not to understand the church just as citizens of a kingdom, but he goes further, more intimate. We are also to understand ourselves as what? Members of his house. Members of the family. We have gained access into the very house of God. And what is to define us now as his children? Peace. With him as our father and with one another as brothers and sisters. Peace does not mean we will never sin against one another ever again or grieve one another or offend one another. We surely will do those very things. In fact, if I haven't done those very things to some of you, just give me time. I probably will. And something I do or say or don't say or the way I said it or the way I didn't say it, there's certain to be some offense, perceived or real or whatever. Peace does not mean that will not happen. Peace means we now have the ability to write things, to write the course of the ship as we navigate the waters of family life, to navigate relationships safely. It means we now have the means of reconciliation. We have hope that broken things can be mended That's what peace in the family means. All things mended, hearts, relationships, everything. How are we as the church, more precisely as family, how are we to honor each other and honor our Father as we seek to live out the gospel together? We we are given the answer in Romans 12.10 here. Here's how. Love one another with what? Brotherly, and of course sisterly, affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. And yet, what is our exact nature and tendency as siblings? To do the exact opposite. To outdo one another in terms of, I'm better than you. I can do more than you. I'm faster than you. I'm smarter than you. You need to know your place in the pecking order of this home. We always seek to prove ourselves, to assert ourselves. When God is calling his children to love one another with a kind of brotherly and sisterly affection, that it's a competition to elevate the other person. How often does that define siblings in a house? I mean, there's a reason there's a common phrase, sibling rivalry. What if our rivalry was to outdo one another in serving and loving and forgiving? What if we made that a contest? What's implied in this verse? Brotherly and sisterly affection as it's meant to be. You see, we could, we could grossly misapply this verse if we just read it through the lens of our experience. Because for a lot of people, brotherly and sisterly affection was not so affectionate. And so if we're to treat each other the way we treated each other in the home growing up, then yikes, is God really asking us to do that? No, when, when it refers to brotherly and sisterly affection, it means the right kind, the ideal kind, God's kind, not the world's counterfeit version. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul actually goes to great length to show us how we as family in the household of God should act toward one another. And before we get to these verses, the first thing I want to note is how deadly serious God has always been about the young honoring the older. Now, on occasion, this is very difficult because once in a while, the younger actually behave more righteously than the older. Once in a while, the younger have actually studied more faithfully and know more. Sometimes they've been hurt by the older. Sometimes they've been neglected or abused by the older. But never does that justify dishonoring the older. To respect and honor our elders does not mean that we endorse whatever shortcomings or sins they've exhibited against us. It means we honor God by honoring the ordering of things that he designed and implemented at creation. God is a God of order, and from the very beginning, he set things up in human relationship and society and all forms of relationship to function and to flow a certain way. And when you honor God's design, it's not an endorsement of the times people have perverted or corrupted or rejected that design. It's an honoring of the God who is the designer. We are to honor our parents first and foremost, not because they've always lived perfectly toward us, but because they gave us life. And may we never forget, life is a sacred thing. It's a gift. It's a privilege. It is not a right. You do not have a right to sit here today and exist. Neither do I. It is a gift and a privilege. God created in his own image a being that was like him in certain ways. And who is he? He is the great I am. He is life, perfect life. He is perfect existence. So the fact that we are alive and that we know we're alive the fact that we exist and have a self-consciousness that can ponder its own existence, the fact that we're breathing right now and experiencing what God has made, friends, these are privileges. These are not rights. Think of this. There are an infinite number of potential beings or potential souls, human beings, 
that might have existed but don't? How many potentially infinite number of people might have existed and yet never will? Just because they never did. They never will. They never conceived. Yet there's these potential beings that could have existed. And yet, you exist. And I exist. We were given this life. And so regardless of what sins were put on display before us by parents or by elders or whomever, regardless of any sins committed against us by them, we are to honor them as representatives of a design and order that God ordained. And so Paul, understanding these things very clearly, gives instructions to the church as family on how to approach the issue of how we relate to each other. And he starts with those who are younger sometimes potentially seeing an issue in one who is older. And he gives instruction for how to address that. And he says in 1 Timothy 5.1, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Now, it's very sad in our culture today. Sometimes there's this, there's this line you're never allowed to cross no matter what. There's, there's a thing that's out of bounds, and that's don't you ever dare to suggest that there might be some deficiency in an elder in your life. Or an apparent. Notice that Paul, though, speaking in the inspiration of God's word, doesn't say, do not rebuke someone older than you. He does not say that. He says, don't do it harshly, meaning you better be reverent, you better be gentle, you better be respectful as you would in a normal home growing up, honoring roles and boundaries. But exhort, encourage, admonish as if he were your own father. How very, very sad then that so many children, not just when they're young, but maybe when they're as old as 50, 60, 70, they never, ever, ever will have the smallest taste of freedom of being able to say to mom or dad, this is a little bit of an issue, and it's hard to talk about, but it's, it's caused hurt, it, it needs to change. There's not that freedom. There's just this stone in the road that cannot be budged of we do not go there, we do not talk about that. We do not for a moment Pretend as though there might be a deficiency in character that is your right to address. How very tragic when God gave us family relationships to navigate life and spur one another on toward goodness and health in relationship. But we're so proud that sometimes there's no freedom for it. Families who love each other will lovingly, gently address issues that need addressed. But in the church family, there is a proper way to do it. And when an older believer is in error, a younger believer ought to go about it very respectfully and gently, as a godly son would with a father or mother or a godly daughter. Again, this is a big deal to God. Those young sons who at some point would call out to their fathers, hey, you dumb old man, come here. Or hey, you old fool. I've heard sons address their fathers like that. I would not expect to live long if I were them necessarily. (laughs) They will likely face, regardless of what their human father does, they will likely face severe discipline from God and possibly an untimely death. That happened in scripture at times when such young ones would speak so to their elders. And I've heard that in my own life. There are other in-house matters that Paul wants to address, other family dynamics that need to find in the church. The next one he gives in this same verse, 1 Timothy 5.1, it goes on, treat younger men as brothers. 
Now again, we have to qualify this. Because of all the sin and selfishness in the world, this verse might be woefully misunderstood. Why? Because a lot of older siblings are just jerks to their younger siblings. Again, I might be biased because I'm the youngest. But a lot, a lot of younger siblings are just jerks to their older siblings, or at least annoying. And so if we read, treat younger men as brothers, it's like, okay, that'll be fun. Because I know how I treat my brothers. Again, this is grievous to the heart of God. When those who are his will live in such a way that eventually they will bitterly regret. What does it mean here when it says treat younger men as brothers? Well, traditionally in this Jewish culture and according to God's design, older brothers, older sisters were to have this special fondness for and protective sense over their younger siblings. Almost like a miniature version of mom or dad where they take them under their wing, they show them the ropes, they help protect them from pitfalls that they're so young and naive they won't know are coming. Hey, buddy, I've learned from experience. Let me show you a thing or two and spare you some pain and suffering. Older siblings were to be having a, something of a teaching role, a gentle correction, showing a better way. That was God's plan for the family. Is that what sibling life looks like so often in the home today? When Paul says for grown men to treat younger men as brothers, he is speaking from a context where brotherhood was a gift and it was sacred and it was special. And yet, what is the case in our culture? We often see more, see more of the Cain syndrome. We often see older siblings detesting and despising their younger siblings, viewing them as just mere pests, as nuisances, almost sometimes like a subhuman species, this wretched thing to be harassed and kicked aside, abused for sport. How often do conversations among siblings quickly devolve into nothing but just a competition of insults or words of belittlement or derision? When Paul says treat younger men as brothers, it means with a special affection and a care, a desire to protect those who need it and to teach those who are naive, to keep an arm around those who don't yet know the world. That's what God's calling us to as his family, as a gathered assembly of people in his church. Psalm 133.1 says it so beautifully. Behold, behold, look at this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers sisters dwell together in unity. Is there a greater blessing for a mom or dad? Bitterness among siblings is a poison that can endure throughout a lifetime if it's not repented of. We have to think of these things. Paul goes on to give more counsel for the family in the church. 1 Timothy 5.2 Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It's a good thing that he added that last phrase there, isn't it? Because once, once again, how, how would this be misapplied or misunderstood in a modern culture through a modern lens? What we know is that in Bible times, in ancient times, there was such reverence and regard for mothers and for sisters. These days, very tragically, it's become something of a sport for younger men to think and act perversely, in particular toward older women. It's like a game now. How perverted, how sexually deviant can we be, even for young men in the way they think about and talk about? Not just young women their own age, which used to be the normal thing, but now older women. They have, they have all their own sets of ideas and words. What a sad state of things. 
Not only so, but younger women, just like has always been the case, even in Old Testament times, continue to be viewed so often as nothing but objects put on earth to satisfy the lusts of men, if not in real time, then at least in fantasy. We know, or some of you know, in the news, it's been a rough couple weeks. More than one story has surfaced of local professing Christians treating younger girls or boys as sex objects instead of as the precious, infinitely valuable souls that they are. In Paul's mind, and in the biblical context, no one should be more carefully guarded or less exploited than a young girl. And yet that's exactly who is targeted in our world. The greatest commodity on the black market, and I was so grateful that Matt and Christy were sharing on this particular Sunday when we're talking about the church's family, but the greatest commodity on the black market is precious young girls and now increasingly boys as well, sold to the unreservedly depraved, to be abused and destroyed. And so how poignant these words from Paul, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. What does that mean? With absolute purity. Thinking of the church in particular, how many ministries could have avoided their doom had those within the congregation simply done this one thing? To treat others as mothers or sisters with pure motives instead of treating them as potential mates or as potential affairs to be had but instead to treat them as you would a mother or a sister. Paul uses this image of a mother or a sister for a reason. And the reason is this. With, with all the depravity and the wickedness in the world, there are actually a very, very small number who would dare to molest or abuse a mother or a sister. Now, there are some that still will. That's like a whole other line that some will cross as they just go deeper and deeper into the depths of depravity. But the, the crazy thing is, even very worldly, very pagan people, even they won't usually cross that line. I mean, you might find some big tough guy who's part of some biker gang that maybe not all biker gangs are like this, of course, but some that's caught up in crime and, and murder and drug stuff and all that. And even they have this, this thing where if you mention their mother or their sister, all of a sudden, they're, they're a man of pure motive. They're a man of integrity and chivalry. And don't you dare. There's a line you don't cross. There's other lines we'll, we'll, we'll cross. Yeah, we're, everybody does that, but we don't cross this line. There are actually exceptionally few in the world who would, who would so abuse their own mother or sister. There's this built-in reverence there, a purity of heart, a protective heart, a refusal to spoil that thing, that person, that life. That's the remedy in the church. Do you see? That's the remedy for the family of God, for the hopeless sinfulness that defines so much of the world, is to look at one another through these lenses. And so a, a concluding point here for you. Look at each other as family needing encouraged toward holiness, not as objects to be used for selfish gain. This is why we have the picture of family to understand our role as the church. Look at each other as family needing encouraged toward holiness, not as objects to be used for selfish gain. Hebrews 10.19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And then here's the part we're getting at. And let us, his family, his church, consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, which is, has been a big part of our discussion of what it means to be the church, right? Those who gather physically assemble to encourage and to worship and to be in the word. We are not to give up the habit of meeting together, or not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's the easiest thing in the world to get into a habit of not gathering with your brothers and sisters in the faith. It's the easiest thing in the world, and yet it's the very thing God commands us not to do. Rather, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the, the day, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the day approaching. All right, uh, one last verse here for you. This one is so interesting. Have you ever encountered someone who is a professing believer, and yet they openly disparage the gathered assembly, the church that meets within walls, the people of God in a building? It's the kind of person who says, Jesus just traveled around and loved people where they were at. The world was his church. He didn't judge. He, he loved everyone he encountered. He hung out with the sinners. Those were his people. So we should leave our stuffy, lifeless religious buildings, go out into the world, do some actual good, just meet people where they're at, love them where they're at. Have you heard that sentiment? It's a common one. And the hard thing about it is there's a tiny bit of truth laced in there. Yes, Jesus did travel around all the regions. Yes, he did give respect and dignity to just about everyone he encountered. Yes, he did associate with those that society said you don't associate with because they're, they're big sinners. Jesus knew everyone's a big sinner. So there's a little bit of truth to that sentiment, and yet it's such a sad and misguided view of things, and it's very out of step with the actual heart of God. Because while Jesus did show love and concern for the worst of sinners in the world, you want to know what the Bible also indicates, and very clearly so? That Jesus didn't entrust himself to the world because he knew their hearts. He knew their fickleness. I still remember that lesson, David, that Thursday night, and we talked about that passage as a wonderful study. Jesus knew that many in the world were not the sheep of his pasture and would never hear his voice. And so who did he actually have a markedly deep devotion and affection for? His disciples, his people, those who were his own, the sheep who'd heard his voice and come into his pasture. And so we find this very fascinating principle in God's word. While God certainly does want us to have a basic love and genuine goodwill toward all in the world, and yes, I hope that we all go out into the community and we show this love and this goodwill when we rub shoulders at the store or at work or at school. We just have a general kindness and affection for everyone to try to lead them to the light, to love all people, even our enemies. While we should have that, did you know that we are nonetheless to have a special affection for our own spiritual forever family? in the church. And so that whole sentiment of, hey, leave the, leave the stuffy old buildings, just go out into the world, that's, that's exactly opposite of what the Bible actually says. See for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Galatians 6.10, written to the church. Therefore, as we have opportunity, yes, let us do good to all people. True. But what does it say? But especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
God intends for us to have a special affection and devotion to each other in this place. Why? We're going to be in this thing forever, guys. If we can't love each other now, what do we think we're going to do in eternity as his children? But many in the world, they won't, they won't be there. They're of, they're of the spirit of the world, not of the spirit of God. I think a minute ago I mistakenly said a concluding point for you. This one's actually the concluding point. I'm sorry for my pastoral tendencies at times. If we are truly of the company of those who will live forever with the Lord, we need to start loving each other with pure intentions here and now. If we are truly of the company of those who will live forever with the Lord, we need to start loving each other with pure intentions here and now. Praise God that in his word he gives us the picture of family to help us understand our identity as the church. And Lord, would you make it so in our hearts and in our lives as we live and worship together as we interact with one another. Of course, there will be times that test us, personalities very different from our own, grievances that we're tempted to bear grudges over in our hearts, offenses sometimes that are very real, but others that are not real, that are just perceived. Lord, fill us so full with your grace that we have no conceivable option but for it to spill out onto every life and relationship around us. Teach us what it means to love as you have loved, to truly regard and honor one another as brothers and sisters, family who will be forever with you in your house. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Thank you for the picture of family. We love you. We thank you in your name. Amen.